0: I really believe everyone has access to the zone. It's just that not most people cannot access the zone on command. So I show you how to access the zone when you decide to access the zone. And that is the huge difference maker, game changer, bang on the pots and pans moment. Like, wait a minute, you can create this by using a formula that's repeatable. So don't leave it up to chance.
1: Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a Network Wise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. My guest on this episode is Laura Wild, a holistic mental performance specialist. Since those words all in a row like that mean nothing to most people, I'm gonna simplify it. You know how sometimes you're just on or uh, maybe you're playing a sport and you're crushing it. Maybe you just closed a ton of sales in a given day or week you were killing it at trivia night. We've all had those moments. And we say that we're in the zone. Well, this episode is about to provide you with some really good news. Being in the zone doesn't have to happen by chance. You can actually channel the zone and enter it whenever you want. And that's what Laura Wilde is all about. But on top of that, she also attributes her success to relationship building and says that some traits that many people consider being an advantage in getting ahead in life, such as being attractive, can really hold you back. It further proves that it's all about the relationships. So let's dive right in. Laura Wild, welcome to the show. I am excited for this conversation. I uh, enjoy speaking with people like yourself, but I find people like yourself to be some of the most challenging people to interview. Would you like to know why?
0: (laughs) Yes, please
1: because we have a lot of different things to talk about. You bring a lot to the table. You're very dynamic, not to take anything away from anybody else because I've had some really amazing people on the show as well, but it's hard to kind of classify you. Do you go by any labels?
0: Well, I agree with you. I tend to have to be real dim. So the people around me are great at saying, stay focused. I like to say that I'm a sports metaphysician, but that just adds to the confusion. (laughs) <laughs> this last two weeks, I kind of settled on something and I thought I'm really not a mental performance coach because I'm adding in stuff. So I have officially decided that my title for this lifetime, at least for the next year, right, is everything's static. I got to keep it moving. But supra mental performance coach. This means beyond the mental.
1: Oh, I like that. And what does the mental mean? So if we're going beyond the mental, what is the mental? Are you talking mm-hmm. like conscious versus subconscious?
0: Yeah, I'm also talking, adding in like self-awareness and I literally, I'm adding in the quantum. So to me, if we're not adding in the quantum and we're not adding in things like epigenetics and the meditative part, like what does the observer think about our minds, right? If we're just up in our mind, then we're kind of breaking the rule of trying to solve problems where they were created. So the problems we have are mostly created in our mind. So I want to go beyond that. And for me, that's really using like quantum physics and like quantum medicine and some of these things that seem like they're out there, but they're really very simple.
1: Okay. I'm going to want to talk to you. We're going to address the epigenetics a little later because I think that's just so fascinating, but I'd love to learn more about the quantum. What, what do you mean by that? The physics behind that, the quantum?
0: Yeah. So I guess the main, I always use this example because every millennial can understand this, right? So you know how you're, you have that cell phone there in your hand, I'll, I'll point to their iPhone or their Android they go, yeah. I go, well. When I was growing up, we actually had to use cords. So if you're doing metal performance, you have a phone with the cord, and you can only go to the hallway and just inside your bedroom door. You and I probably both experienced it, where I would lean against my door so that the phone would reach into my room. The quantum is the cell phone. That's the difference. The old stuff is that cord that drags around the house, and literally, I would get yelled at by my parents. Bring the phone back in here. But I'm on it. I know. I don't want the phone cord down the hallway. So. Now I'm noticing that, oh yeah, everyone understands cell phones and those are made with quantum mechanics. So the iPhone, the Android, all those, all these things with no cords, that's the quantum level. And it's really fast connection, right? like I don't have to mail a letter. I can just pick up the cell phone, boom. And we're there. And that's what happens when you work with elite performers, the quantum level is fast and it kind of goes beyond what we're used to.
1: So are they already at the quantum level and you're refining that or you're taking them to the quantum level?
0: I would say I'm bringing them an awareness of their quantum level. So yeah, everyone's, we're already operating at this. You know, we're humans on a planet traveling. I don't know how many miles per hour we are traveling, but it's pretty fast. So we're not dizzy. And then the idea of the quantum is it's already within us. It's already part of who we are. We can't walk around without it. But people just don't tend to notice that we have this connection to every other thing in the universe. So I show them, it's it's like this if there's a prism and it, the light goes into the prism and it reflects out, or maybe it refracts out into all these different colors, then I'm working with athletes like reverse prism. We're taking the colors, all the colors, the experiences, the personalities, the belief systems, their gifts and talents. And I'm kind of funneling it in to the prism at the big side of the prism. And it comes out in a focused light, like literally a line of focused light. And that's how they operate. And I would say that's kind of, working at the quantum level, like that kind of analogy paints a little bit of a picture, I hope.
1: Yeah. And then is that the zone that you talk about?
0: Oh, yeah. That's the zone. The zone is bringing everything together and just letting it be completely focused. What's interesting about the focus is when I teach athletes to get in the zone, it's really about expanding. I'm like, let me teach you how to get in the zone when it's loud. And so if I'm training someone to get in the zone, I'll drop something. I'll make noise. I don't turn my phone off because it's just not reality. When they're actually under pressure, they need to have experienced the zone with all kinds of things going on around them. So yeah, that's the zone.
1: Mm. And your superpower is getting people into that zone. How do you do it?
0: (laughs) Well, there's a formula for getting in the zone. And it's the simple way of thinking about it is we have to first relax our body and then our mind So we can actually surrender to something else beyond us. So if I'm just walking around, I'm probably thinking about a lot of things. So I get the athlete or the person, doesn't matter if it's an athlete or not, to allow their mind to kind of surrender. It's like this, almost like a mystical force takes over. Something else is out there. And even if people don't believe that, I go, well, were you focusing on breathing for the last five minutes or were you just breathing? Like pretty sure you were breathing, but you weren't thinking about it. So it's like, guys, if we're—if you don't die when you stop thinking about breathing, then that means you can actually allow the game to be played through you because you allow the breath to move through you too. So it's actually really easy. It's just like breathing. Like literally, it's already there. You just have to notice it. And so I pointed out to them over and over again, look, there is how you can go find your way into the zone. So, you know, it's a process.
1: So you first help them identify, well, first and foremost, identify that everyone has the zone. It's just a matter of pointing them and getting them to access their zone.
0: Yeah because I really believe everyone has access to the zone it's just that not or most people cannot access the zone on command so i show you how to access the zone when you decide to access the zone and that is the huge difference maker game changer bang on the pots and pans moment like wait a minute you can create this by using a formula that's repeatable so don't leave it up to chance right don't there's someone that said don't get into flow by chance get into it by choice And most people don't teach that. I've done the research. I'm looking for who else is teaching how to get in the zone every time. And I've kind of created this awesome formula that's relaxing and fun and exciting. And it can be taught to everyone.
1: And how long does it take to teach someone to get into the zone? And then how long can someone, once they understand how to get in the zone, how long... If, they, if I wanted to get in the zone, how long would it take me once you've taught me how to do this? And then how long do you stay in the zone? Or is it something that you have to just continuously kind of uh, do in order to keep yourself there? I know oh, I just I a lot that. about you.
0: <laughs> That's okay. I'm a prism. I'm a reverse prism. So all the things I'm pulling in. So to, t- to train someone to get in the zone, I love to say it takes about eight hours. To be great at getting in the zone could take that eight hours or it might take someone five years. For me... I used to get in the zone when I played sports a lot. And then when I was trained to get into the zone, it took me a couple of years to realize, wait a minute, I have this power and I didn't quite put it all together. It was like, I learned how to slow down my mind by breathing and how to access another state, but I hadn't recognized it as I can do this on command and walk around every day like this. So once someone learns, they can actually on their own do all the practice it takes. Some people can get in the zone and really stay there a long time other people will get back into the zone quite a bit. Like once in a while, I'll be walking around and the way you know you're out of the zone is if you criticize yourself or someone else. Boom, you're out of the zone. Like if I'm being judgmental, I'm not in the zone. Like end of story. Or if I get upset or excited or have a brief moment of my heartbeat racing because of something that I see that I'm out of the zone. But yeah, once you learn how to get in the zone, you can also learn how to get back into the zone really quickly and after being in the zone, it's just like as you practice free throws or throwing a football, the more you practice throwing it, the more comfortable you are throwing it. And I think people have a lot of fear. like They don't know how to do these. They don't know how to get in the zone. So they don't practice it. But once I show someone how to practice it, they actually really enjoy it. And then I don't have to remind them. It's just they do it on their own. And is this
1: zone, are there different kinds of zones and or, or is it just
0: one zone that you're in? Yeah, that's actually, I love the way you asked that because. So I always call it the alpha zone. The thing is, it's not really the alpha zone because when you meditate, you're basically in a, if you're a good meditator, right? Which that's kind of a joke, right? A good meditator. I mean, anyone who meditates, it's just a meditator. We don't label it, you know, when you look at the from the spiritual side. So however, right now we're walking around, we're wide awake, we're in beta state. And then if I can get a little closer to the zone, I'll go into the alpha zone or the alpha mind state. And then a little more deeply down is the theta. And that's where most of our meditation takes place, especially when we're a practice meditator. So what's interesting is when I teach someone who meditates a lot how to get in the zone, they go too far below and they disappear from the room. Even though they're sitting right in front of me, they're no longer able to really hear me. And people who don't know how to meditate tend to stay very aware of the surroundings. So there's a really sweet spot just at the slower brainwaves of the alpha, right connected at the fastest brainwaves of theta. So it is a sweet spot. And that's the only zone that anyone's ever really talking about. They just have come up with all kinds of names, flow state, zone. I don't even know what else. I was uh, locked in. Those are all just a way of explaining the sweet spot between alpha and theta.
1: So if you don't have like an fMRI, how do you know which state you're in? Like, how do you know if you've gone past your... Because my understanding is when you close your eyes, you go into alpha So it's not that difficult to get in. And maybe that's just my own ignorance, but it's theta. That's like the golden nugget.
0: (laughs) I'm not going to call it ignorance at all. I mean, when you close your eyes, that's one of the first steps to getting an alpha. But here's the thing. I walk around in the zone in the alpha because I've trained myself to do it with my eyes open. And that's the difference, right? So I can train anyone to get in the zone with their eyes closed. And the key is that I take the training a little bit further So you get in the zone with your eyes open because I mean, heaven forbid your eyes are closed. You're trying to make a dunk, but closing the eyes is a step to alpha, but it's not actually getting into alpha. Because if I close my eyes in a busy subway in New York city, I'm probably thinking who's going to try to, you know, push me over. What if I miss my train? If those thoughts are going on, you're still in beta, but to get an alpha, it really is a process of learning to get there. And you know, when I train someone, I can kind of see where they are, but they're also clues. Thomas Edison used to have this thing he did when he was thinking about things and imagining things, he would hold a ball bearing in his hand, and he knew that if he fell asleep and like when he didn't have a ball bearing in his hands, he'd fall asleep and wake up later and go, oh damn, I missed this greatest invention, but I forgot what it is. So he started holding a ball bearing in his hand and at the moment he went to that deeper state of state, the ball bearing would clang to the floor and he would be jolted into awakeness and remember what he had just been dreaming about. So that's one way you can do it. I like to hold crystals and then when they fall, I go, oh, okay, just went to theta. So you can test things out, but it doesn't matter a whole lot because once you're into either alpha or theta, especially if your eyes are open, you're going to be performing at such a great level that you don't need to measure what it is. You just need to be surrendering to it and like really like letting it take over you.
1: That's great. So Getting back to the one of the first questions I had, is this something that we can kind of live in this zone or do we want to get into an elevated, like you said, whether you're shooting a free throw that you need to be locked into Theta?
0: Yeah. I think, honestly, I wish we could all live in the zone. If everyone learned how to get into the zone, I think the world would be a better place on all levels. Because once you're in that space, it's really hard to do harm to other human beings, right? When you're in that state, you're in a state of connecting with the collective unconscious. Suddenly, you are me and I am you. And that's one of the things I use with athletes. I help them merge with their favorite athlete. Let's say it's a kid who's not super great. I say, Hey, why don't you practice merging with your favorite athlete? Like literally get into the zone. And once they're in the zone, I'll say, now imagine stepping inside a really powerful athlete that you love. And they can kind of have this connection because at the collective unconscious level, we are all connected. So yeah, the zone, we could live in it. I tend to live in it a lot more probably than the average person. Mm-hmm. And once you're trained and you can start to go there more and more, it becomes easier to default to that space. Right. And that's to me, that would be like a life goal. Oh my gosh, I taught a million people how to get into the zone and now the world's a better place.
1: That's fantastic. So are there things that people if they're listening right now and they don't necessarily can't afford you or get access to you? Are there a couple of things that you could recommend that they do on a daily basis to help get themselves in the zone.
0: What I always say is I have these three gems and these three gems to me all go together. So one thing I would have someone do is uh, write a big statement down or even a big question, like, you know,
1: Big, like powerful, like like,
0: powerful, like, like powerful. Like what is the nature of being an NBA superstar? Or what is the nature of being the CEO of a fortune 500 company? Something like that. that's beyond where you are now. And it is a little bit ridiculous. Like it really needs to be a little ridiculous. Like if you're on track to being a great division three player, make your big question bigger than that. What's the nature of getting drafted in the first round? Because we want our subconscious mind to start to like hear these big things and not let us go into fear and self-sabotage. So I always start with a big, huge question. And then from there, okay, if that's going to happen, then what should I do? Oh, I need to have mental reps and mental reps are really easy you close your eyes and you pretend you're doing the thing. So you close your eyes, you pretend you're dunking to basketball or you close your eyes, you pretend you're signing checks to merge companies and doing these huge things, whether it's business or sports. So the superhuman mental reps means you're being a little ridiculous, like you're dunking from half court when you close your eyes. So those reps, right? That definitely would get you drafted in the first round. So let's use our imagination to go beyond where we are physically, maybe even emotionally and mentally because the superhuman mental reps start to bind us together, like with the dopamine going on in our brains. Like So then we become, instead of addicted to negative self-talk, we want to become addicted to big dreams, right? And then from there, I always tell someone that if you start to look at your meditation and your breath as really powerful, some people say, oh, I can't meditate for whatever reason. Maybe they can't sit still that long. Okay, start with 10 seconds. You can sit still for 10 seconds. So there's really never a reason why someone couldn't meditate. It's also not outside of any religion, because even the person who's most religious, I would say meditation is listening to God. So if you think it's outside of religion, it's not, it's just listening to a higher power beyond yourself. And then the breath work is just easy. I always say, just take an elevator breath, which all that means is you would just start by sitting in place and imagine that there's an elevator in the bottom of your feet, and let the elevator move up through your whole body all the way to the top of your head. And then when it gets to the top of your head, It's going to let out all the negative people or the negative thoughts in your mind. Let the elevator door open, little negativities run away, and then just allow some really beautiful light, some good energy to run into the elevator at the top of your head. Close those doors and then just watch the elevator go all the way back down to your feet, traveling slowly. You're just following it. You're not forcing it. You're just in the flow, letting the elevator go and you're just watching it. You're observing it not caught up in it, not overthinking it. And I always say, just imagine yourself connecting to the earth energy because the earth energy has a very relaxing vibration that most of us are not aware of. And so from there, let the elevator go back up to the top and let it bring with it all this beautiful energy, this nurturing energy from Mother Earth. And by the time the elevator gets back up to the top and you let it suspend before you observe it going back down, you probably have gotten yourself a little closer to the alpha state. Because at that point, your breath has slowed down and you become an observer instead of a doer. You become in a state of being, right? Instead of doing or forcing or overthinking things. So I think those three things combined are one of the ways people can start to get in the zone.
1: Wow. Yeah, it's good. And and it's so funny. It's so in line. I had uh, Tom Silver, who is a famous hypnotherapist. He's, He's worked with so many kinds of people. And after our show he worked on me and he kind of took me through something similar. And And it's so interesting hearing you talk and, and drawing upon some of the things that he walked me through. And it's been amazing. Now I start my day every single day with some of these kinds of exercises and it's had a tremendous impact on me. So for those who are listening, I would really, even if they just played that mini little session, you know, I think we're at about around the 17 minute mark where you started. I mean, even just hearing you and having you walk them through that, just that one little session, I think we'll get them there. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, these the, it's the little tiny things like this that add up to the big thing. One time I was listening to Jack Canfield do a talk and he said, dream big and plan small. So oh yeah, dream big, dream about being in the, whatever, the NBA, the NFL or the CEO somewhere, and then plan small. Plan that you're going to focus on breathing for two minutes. And that little step gets you closer and closer because there's so many books written about habits and how... If I eat McDonald's every day, it's not a big deal. But in 20 years, if I've eaten it every day, too late to undo it. Oh, well. And I actually, I listened to Tom Silver's podcast. I really with you. I like that guy a lot. <laughs> really great guy.
1: Oh, he's fantastic. I'm happy to introduce you, too. I think the two of you I love would, that. Would, yeah, would get on well. And it's funny, you talked about habits. I mean, everything, everything's a habit. I, I tell people all the time, you don't control your future. You control your habits. And it's your habits that dictate your future. Yeah. So uh, get into this.
0: Tell my kids that. Tell my kids that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I tell my kids that too. I tell everybody. I'll tell
0: your kids and you tell my kids and then they'll listen. (laughs)
1: That's so true. What is it? The shoemaker's uh, kid has no shoes or something? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It is so true. Can you tell when people are in the zone or not? Whether it's like as we're talking or on the phone or whether it's a Zoom or just when you're watching on TV or in person?
0: Yes, I can one of the ways to tell if someone's in the zone is are they in excellence or not? I mean, it's like, you know what? Because hardly anyone's ever in the zone. I guess that's what it comes down to is people say, what NBA players do you see that get in the zone all the time? I'm like, I don't know. It would take me one hand if I had two fingers cut off to name them. Really? You know? Yeah. I mean, just, especially guys who consistently get in the zone, like some might get in the zone for a short while, but even some of the best players get in the other than Michael Jordan, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the other best players tend to get in the zone for a quarter or something. I mean, I did notice that it seemed like the Celtics had this like zone team thing going. And it was really fun to watch them. Like, I would be exhausted after their games for the last playoffs in the bubble because it's catching. Like the zone is catching. Mm-hmm. So I can see when someone's in the zone because things just go right. And literally, that's the that's what the zone is about, right? You can't do any wrong. And everyone remembers that Michael Jordan was shrugging his shoulders, running down the court, like, I don't know, can't miss. And that's what the zone feels like. I mean, it's a little bit mystical, but it's also very practical. Wow. Everything is going right. And just the way I practice. So it feels magical because hardly ever does everything always go right, especially in sports. So yeah, I can tell by watching people.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Have you ever worked with any golfers? I would think that golfing is a, is a sport that could really benefit. Well, every, we could all benefit.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I think golf is actually uh, a little different. I actually would be interested in working with more golfers because you can actually measure a golfer right before they hit the ball, which is great, right? A basketball player, you can't really measure it, but golfers, I've worked with only amateur golfers thus far. I haven't thought it out much. I actually am planning to learn to play golf because for me, Understanding the sport helps me a lot. Like I really want to be on the inside of it, not the outside looking in when I try to help someone be great. So for golfers, it's really incredible because they're all alone. It's so easy to get caught up in their own heads. Unlike other sports, like in basketball, the game moves so fast that you don't have a lot of time to to worry. But for golfers, to me, it's kind of like a baseball pitcher. I've worked with a lot of pitchers. And to me, golf and a baseball pitcher are kind of similar because you got one at a time. Like it's, and there's only, well, I always say like with the baseball pitcher, you're only going to throw one pitch the entire game. And that's the pitch you're about to throw. So I think it's the same for golf. You're just going to hit the ball one time in the entire game. And that's right now. So yeah, I love working with golfers. I think they can benefit the most. I've had amateur golfers like text me later, like you are not going to believe this. <laughs> and I'm just kidding. Like I, I actually am going to believe this. I trust my work. <laughs> so they are understanding that there is something different. They don't like people think, oh, yeah, I, I've done all the work. I'm, I'm already at the best I can be right now. I'm like, no, that's your capability. You have a capacity that you haven't seen yet. Your capacity is actually beyond what you're doing right this second and what you're going to do tomorrow, or the next day. Your capacity is outside of your mindset, and it's outside of your mentality. And if you let me work with you, I will show you your capacity. It's nothing like what you thought. Like, you have a perceived potential and then your actual potential. And the actual potential is way higher. Because it takes away thoughts, beliefs, parents, negativity, positivity, all that. And that's where I feel like the difference is happening right? with the athletes I work with. Hey, I know you think you can be great, but you really don't recognize how great you can be. That's my job to tell you every day and to point at you over and over again and show you where you're missing these little greatness corners that are inside of you. And it's my job to tease them out. And how did they
1: take this? Like you, I mean, you're dealing with elite athletes I and mean, you're playing at the NBA level. Are you finding them to embrace what you're bringing to the table? Because it's a little out there for the conventional thinker. I mean, you're dealing with elite athletes that have elite egos. So um, what's their take on what it is that you're bringing to the table?
0: Well, it's interesting because in the beginning, when I was in the NBA, I was like being a salesperson. (laughs) I was like, well, here's the reason you should work with me. And then I I got, you know, I thought, you know, if I want to date a man, I would never say, here's why I'm awesome. I would just ignore him. That would get his attention faster than anything. So I started just being in my own world. I'd be around our, the different teams and I'd be reading a book or I would just meditate or be happy. And people started saying, what are you doing? What's that book? What's that about? And people would ask me, I always, I think that a lot of NBA athletes have a, a slight or a lot of narcissism in them. Just meaning that they really, it's all about them so often. And it's been all about them because society has made it that way. So imagine telling a guy who believes he's great, that he can be greater. It's music to their ears, actually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then what about as being a woman practicing this work? What has been the advantage and yeah. what have been some of the disadvantages?
0: Yeah, in some ways, it's a huge advantage. I think the disadvantage was when I was 10 years ago, I was trying to get into the NFL or the NBA. and I didn't get in uh, until about four years ago. So I would think that, okay, if I just look really attractive and I wear really nice clothes, it's going to help. No, it was a disadvantage. I'd have comments come at me like, oh, my wife would never let me hire you to work with our team. What? What do you mean you're, I don't know your wife. I don't know you. And so guys would be nervous about having a perceived attractive woman around them, around the team. And I know I've heard comments like, well, I don't know. She's young enough where the players would see her as a possibility. What? So I had to wait till I got to my 40s for people to take me really seriously. So I think there's a huge disadvantage that everyone thinks would be an advantage. Like it'd be an advantage if I wanted to be a cheerleader, but to work and be taken really seriously, I always have to be smarter. Like I'm working on my PhD in quantum medicine. I have so many certificates. Like I have to always prove like I'm actually smart. That's the most important thing about me. And what's interesting is that once I'm on the inside, I'm like their mama. Like I was a single mother of a young black man who's now six foot three, tall and strong and powerful and an elite ballet dancer in Russia. So that's my advantage. Like I can talk to them like I'm their big sister or like their black mama. And (laughs) young black men and older black men listen to black women. So that is a huge advantage. My race and my gender in relating to the guys because they know I get them. They know I've been there. They know I got their back. I'm looking out for them. And there's a sort of kind of inside track that they feel with me, even if I don't know them really well, just because I'm so comfortable, right? Like one of the players was calling me, um, Auntie Wild, you know. So like, Auntie Wild, what are you doing tomorrow? Can I get a session? So there's this sort of. And plus, I got good at my sneaker game. So if you have sneakers, they can look at and admire. Now you're speaking their language. So I feel like I had a few things in, working for me to my advantage. <laughs> Nike.
1: <laughs> what advice would you give another, a fellow female that's coming up the ranks that's trying to you know follow in your footsteps? What are things that, that you did well that really helped kind of pave the road? And then what could you have done better?
0: It's interesting. I tend to be a really friendly person, like so friendly that all those memes people see on Instagram, like don't take my kindness as flirtation. So I got a little less friendly when I was talking to people. I still and myself, right? But I had to pull back on the friendliness until people could understand I wasn't just overly outgoing. Because I can be, right? One thing is funny, when I first did my interview for um, a team a few years ago, I just went like in kind of sloppy clothes. I mean, I wasn't sloppy, but I just didn't worry about my looks at all. And then a few months in, I changed and went back to my normal self. And I just noticed some looks like, oh, you're looking for attention. I No, actually, I'm not looking for attention. I look like this normally. I just downplayed myself. So I hate to say that. uh, And I don't know if that's always true. I really don't think that's a fact. I just feel like sometimes as women, we're taught from the little girl age that if we look pretty, we will get things we like. And I don't think that's really true in pro sports. I also would say networking. I mean, the reason I got into the NBA is because when I was 19 years old, I had a post coach that my neighbor told me about who just wanted to be a mentor, Clifford Ray. He won the world championship in 74 with the Golden State Warriors. And I was so ignorant of who he was. I was just, I would be five minutes late to our practice session at the outdoor court at Highland Park High School in Chicago. And I just had the best summer. I mean, and then I kept in touch. And back then we didn't have, I didn't have a cell phone. I was young and didn't have the money for one. So they might, I don't think we actually had them. Like Magic Johnson probably had one, but the average person didn't. So I just kept in touch and I let him help me build a network. And building a network is the number one thing to do I constantly preach this to my kid. I'm like, call people when you don't need anything, not when you need something. Stay in touch, give value, send people articles. If you find an article that they're in, send it to them. They might not have seen it. So building the network was the number one thing. Then people took me seriously. When I went to get a job in the NBA, I could say, hey, I've known Clifford Ray for 19 years and he can vouch for me. And that is golden. It's like, oh, she didn't just show up on the scene. We know of her. She's like a sister to us. 'Cause it's really a brotherhood and a sisterhood when it comes to these pro leagues.
1: Oh yeah. I mean I mean, you know what they say, you get someone to ring your horn, the sound will carry twice as far. Those are great tips, by the way. And and I, I highly recommend all of those things. Like if you think of them, you see something that reminds you of them. And now it's so much easier. You can send a text, yeah. send an email, tweet it, or whatever it is, right. whatever their you know chosen uh, medium that works best is. But there's tons of ways to get someone's attention. So uh, a big fan of that. How do you, Are there other things that you recommend, or are there other people that you've stayed in contact with, or that you've helped that you can recommend, or that you can that you've done?
0: Well, I definitely made quite a few contacts starting at an early age, whether it was was athletes or athletic directors in colleges. And I joined organizations. I mean, mm. I joined the Black Coaches Association. I joined the Association of Applied, whatever, psychology. I mean, I don't even know the name of it. But I would join organizations and make connections that way so I could build my network really wide. But then also building my network down is important, where mm. I don't just talk to someone once a year, where once a month they might hear from me, not just on the holidays, but when I can offer something of real value, and as I've gotten a little older, I realized that it's very important because I don't believe the universe is going to bless anything that I do unless I'm reaching back and pulling someone else along. So I don't only build a network, I help others build one. And I'm always willing to share and give a hand to a young person who shows up. And it's funny because I actually realize I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage that I'm not 25 because everyone wants to help a 25-year-old. Oh, yeah, you're young. Because that was what I got. I actually was talked to this guy named Buddy the Dallas Mavericks, when I was 23 years old, I had this huge idea for a community project. I mean, I didn't know anything. I just wrote a letter. Back then, he just wrote letters, not emails. And he called me, and I had a meeting. And he sat there listening to me for an hour, telling me how Mark Cuban could do this huge community program. And he listened. He gave me his attention. He gave me all his pointers and feedback on it. And I look back now. I was like, wow, that kind of meeting is impossible to get these days. But a 25-year-old who's eager can probably still get those types of meetings.
1: So true. Let's go back to Buddy for a second. Did did, <laughs> you, did anything, you know, come of that? Did he give you any advice?
0: Oh, he did. He just, he told me that he said, I love how bold you are and that you just knew that you had a great idea. So he was telling me, if you have a great idea, go for it. What happened is I actually got the head coaching job at the university of Dallas, like a month or two later. So I was no longer trying to work in an office at the NBA. He also said to me, interestingly, he said, Being on staff with an NBA team is not a very lucrative paycheck. I would recommend that you find a way to partner with the NBA in some other way, which is interesting because I actually realized that was kind of turning out to be true when I got my most recent job. And I came in as a consultant because if you're on payroll, there's a whole different mindset Mm -hmm. compared to a consultant. So he told me about being on staff. And so I think ever since then, I was like, I'm going to have my own company. So even though I worked as a basketball coach for many years in colleges, I really worked to always have my own business on the side and to continue to build my business so that I was never just being an employee, but I could kind of write my own ticket and actually write my own salary. And that I think is where it gets really powerful when you think about the thing that what Buddy told me. It's funny because just the other day, his name popped into my head. I was like, I bet that guy is still around because the Dallas Mavericks haven't made a lot of changes since the 90s. So I was thinking I should look him up and let him know, hey, man, I made it.
1: I hope you do. And, and I hope you wait for this to come out and then you share that because that's another, instead of the article, you can forward him an interview.
0: <laughs> yes, know, that, that is exactly what I'll do. <laughs> <you know?
1: laughs> and we're done. Get, we'll get me the name and I'll try to make sure that we tag him or tag the Mavericks. So, okay. Uh, he, if he's still there. But something else that I think you, you brought up and, and in case people, it, it's not, it didn't hit him straight in the, right in between the eyes <laughs> when it comes to networking and building the relationships is you got access to great information he get and that's what the, that's what building these relationships can do. So and, and a lot of times people don't understand that, you know, what networking is and you nailed it by talking about giving and providing value and being in a position that you can do that because just in case you do need something. That's the proper mindset. But what you also you got out of that relationship was information that was so valuable and that's what these relationships do. Most people go after the job in the MBA and they now you're in a position where you're controlling your own destiny. You're making your own money. You're not on necessarily someone else's dime. And to me, that's powerful.
0: Yeah, it's actually, it's a really great feeling because I realized that per hour consultants make like five or 10 times more than staff in the average staff person. Right? I mean, I'm not comparing myself to a Frank Vogel or someone like that, but the salary and the money you make and the hours are very different. One thing you actually reminded me of is I have a really good friend who's always, he's a works in Hollywood, does some production stuff. He's always saying, make sure you ask questions. So I met this 102 year old guy, Sam Sachs, I believe is his name. He's a veteran of the armed services. I'm not even sure which one, but I met him at a Clippers game and people were walking by him and stopping to take pictures because there was something about this man that was so beautiful. He was obviously a hundred years old. Like you could just tell. And I leaned down to get my picture with him. His, I think his daughter was taking pictures. And I said, and no one else asked him a question. I said, will you please tell me what the one thing you feel that I should know for the rest of my life that I should do? And he was so sweet. He leaned in and he, got, he kind of gave me this beautiful smile. And he said, just always choose first to be happy. Don't worry about the details, but choose happiness first. And it just was so powerful for me because... I was dealing with things, job stuff, relationship. And I was like, wow, it's such a simple piece of advice, but it makes so much sense. Like, let me stop worrying about the details and getting caught up because there's so much more power in focusing on just, let me just let myself be happy right here instead of overthinking, right?
1: Can I interject there, by the way? Yeah. Because you segued that so nicely with the relationships because 70% of happiness is derived from relationships. So yeah. it's really interesting that you brought it up right here and from him. I, I missed his name. I, I don't know if you got.
0: it. I think it's Sam Sachs. Yeah, I because right. I posted a picture of him on Instagram because I was the moment will never leave me. Like it's just it's a beautiful moment, and I was actually wishing my son was in the states to meet him. It's like I want everyone to meet him because he just gives so much love.
1: Mm. Well, you know what? Everyone that's listening can look them up. Do you mind sharing your Instagram? I'll, I'll post it oh, also, but you know, for those that are,
0: go for No, it. I'm thirsty for Instagram followers. <laughs> I'll admit it. So <laughs> on Instagram, I'm Laura Mitchell wild and wild has an E. So Laura Mitchell wild. I tried to get Laura M wild and keep it simple, but it was taken. So Laura Mitchell wild is me and you'll see like unicorns and crystal balls and things like that. And then you'll notice me.
1: Okay, good. Because I, I know when I'm listening to a podcast and I hear something, I, I'll sometimes pause it and I'll Google it or something. Or yeah. So definitely. so at least now they'll have. I'm sure there's a, a visual for those that are <laughs> listening, but now they can really see it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll suck the creativity right out of them. So you work back to some of the people that you're working with. I mean, you're obviously dealing with the elite of the elite. Are there any common threads that you see among some of these elite athletes?
0: Oh yeah. You know, it's funny because. Once I really got up close and impersonal to like to NBA practices, I started texting all the young guys I knew, and I would say, "Hey, just learn how to be a great shooter and just work a little bit harder than the next guy because what's interesting to me is that on some level, the elite like, I feel like as humans, we're a little bit wired to, for survival first, which can make us lazy. It's a lot of effort to read extra books we don't need to read. It's a lot of effort to go and do things that aren't required of us as a human. So I feel like the difference between the athlete who doesn't make it and the NBA athlete or the the NFL athlete is that they're just a little less lazy than the average human. But I still notice I would actually literally be kind of blown away. Like it seems like athletes are actually kind of lazy. Like they're very singular focused, right? Singularly focused. They play basketball, they go to practice, and they don't want to do anything else, hardly at all, all day. But they might play video games. So I was like, oh, the NBA athlete, they have a little more talent. But they also just are working a little harder. But there's something that was interesting to me. I thought, oh, being a pro athlete isn't that hard. Now, I know the pro basketball players who might be listening might say, actually, it is hard. But what's different is that there's like a small difference between the guys who don't make it and the guys who do. And that confidence and a little bit of arrogance. I don't know if I can curse on here, but I'll just say the a-hole. Say whatever you want. (laughs) You got to have 1% asshole in you. You do. The guys who are super nice, who make it, Sometimes, and I don't want to like promote people not being nice. And I only mean a tiny shred. I don't mean to have much of it, but there's something that is a slight amount of arrogance that's in every great athlete. And I think once they become great, they let go of that. Like Michael Jordan, when I met him when I was 19, like I was working overnight in a white hen pantry in Highland Park, Illinois. And he was so rude when he came in to the, the store. It was just me and him at 2 a.m. He refused to sign the autograph he's like my favorite player, my idol. But then now that he's older, he's, you know, chilled out. But then you look at the the movie that came out or the documentary series, I was like, oh, he was just being great. And he didn't let down off that arrogance when he could have, but he did make his mark on humanity as one of the greatest to ever play the game. So I kind of, in my mind, forgave him like, oh, okay, he just knew what it took to really get past all the doubt that could be created if he didn't have a little bit of arrogance like that. So it's interesting. I don't love that part about it, but my son has it. In fact, I've talked to him a lot about this. It's like, he's a great athlete. He's a professional ballet dancer. His girlfriend is a prima ballerina. Like they are the stuff in Russia. But then there's this little bit of arrogance. And Mm -hmm. and he's like, mom, I couldn't be great if I didn't have this. I go, yeah, you're right. You're right. So (laughs) I let him.
1: How much is, what's the difference between having like an edge or arrogance?
0: I've actually really started studying this. And there is, I'm just going to say like, 1% 1% of arrogance is enough. You don't need 2% or more, but 1% is enough. And there's definitely an edge. Like there's definitely something special that's inside. And I know that some people seem to be born with it, but it's also, I, I believe that it's teachable as well, which I think throws most people off. You can teach that. I believe you can. Where do you see
1: most of these athletes getting stuck? Is it the your nutrition? Is it their lack of discipline? Is it distractions or maybe just being surrounded by bad people?
0: <laughs> I think it is distraction, but I think many of the distractions are internal. I think they're like, if we could listen to the voice of a professional athlete next to the guy who didn't make it, I think the internal dialogue would be similar, but the pro athlete just has the moments of hearing other people tell him how great he is. And they get so much from other people telling them how great they are, that I don't think they've built up their own internal feeling of greatness. And I think that's where guys fall short is that their greatness is really built on almost like there's an arena around them, literally. And they're in the middle of the arena and they get all their greatness feedback from the arena. And so some of the guys in the bubble didn't really thrive. Mm -hmm. But the ones who thrived had their own inner greatness. Like, you know, gladiators need the crowd. They need that input to remind them how great they are. But the guys who get it all the way, they have an inner game and they're in their own zone. Like they can thrive, they can stay healthy because of that. And I do feel like it's teachable that guys can learn to have that edge.
1: That's interesting. So you're saying kind of most of these athletes and I'm generalizing most athletes, you know, they're all elite for the most part. I mean, they didn't get there by accident. So on a scale of one to 10, Michael Jordan, let's call is a 10 or LeBron is a 10. <laughs> Everyone else is, they're all probably at like nine, five or greater, but what's going to get them to nine, six, nine, seven, nine, eight is that edge or that mental, you know, it's mental.
0: Prowess, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the, men, I, I honestly and think that's it's where best, you come in. Yeah. And I think the mental prowess is not always enough because the problem with that, the problem with just having mental prowess is you can have an opting a little too often Because unless the game is flowing through you, like most athletes, the game comes from them. They move their arm, they kick their foot out, they run with their arms and legs. And I really, you know, have, I can't say I've mastered this skill, but this is a skill where this is one of my superpowers, right? Is showing the athlete the the difference between letting the game come from you or letting the game move through you. And even with one of the pitchers I worked with recently, I kept saying, hey, let the ball be thrown from you. Don't use your shoulder. Let the energy, the infinite energy, come through you to throw that ball. And this dude is like, I mean, he's a major league pitcher. He starts. He can throw so many pitches because he recognizes that there's this replaceable, infinite supply of energy that he can tap into. So he's not just going to throw what his shoulder can throw. He's going to use the power of the entire cosmos. I mean, that's when I get kind of woo woo, but it's like, yeah, but you know what? I've seen it happen. So I've seen a guy tell me, he can. I could maybe pitch a whole game. And who talks about that
1: in 2020? <laughs> you can go six innings these days. Yeah. That's
0: a win. He's gotten pulled uh, out like, no, I'm ready. I can still pitch. But they're just thinking like, well, in our in our box of, of things that can happen that are okay, this is the amount of pitches we've kind of decided on as a society. And even though he's able to go more, he has to now overcome belief systems about what a shoulder is capable of. Because you know, as he will say, I've got a quantum shoulder. <laughs> it's different. Mm.
1: <laughs> I love that.
0: Laura, wh- wh- what
1: would you say is the number one thing that has contributed to your success?
0: I think it's my resilience. But kind of threw me right. My resilience is, well, it's interesting because I used to suffer from depression. Then I noticed that I did a lot of this work. I got a lot of sessions for myself. I learned how to get in the zone and I started living there. And even when things go bad, like I joke with my mom, like, I will try to lie in bed and pout. I'm like, I'm just going to lie in bed and be depressed for a day. No, an hour later, I'm up like writing a book or trying to write a blog or or ordering a book online to read because I'm so curious. In the last week during this whole quarantine time, there was a moment in a day where I thought, oh my gosh, there's that depression that I haven't seen for a decade. And it crept back in. And I gave myself a break. I said, you know what? Gee whiz. Since the day, my birthday was March 19th. That was the day that California locked down. I was like, since March 19th, you've been in a two bedroom apartment by yourself, mostly, you know, doing zoom, working from home a lot. And you just only now had a moment of depression. And then I, I'm going to use my own tools. And I like looked in the mirror and I cussed at myself in a good way. Like you are resilient. And it just recognizing that I'm resilient and honoring that I'm resilient and having a little bit of re- reverence for myself. Like I have self reverence that I didn't have when I was younger. Most of us don't have a high level of self-esteem or high worthiness. And if we seem like we do, it's often a little bit fake or false, right? It's like, it's a, it's just an outer shell, but in the inside, really I'm insecure, right? A lot of the athletes are like that. So I think my resilience is really key in my ability just to flow wherever I am, right? Oh, the world's going to shut down. Okay. I might be irritated about it, but I'm going to find a way to make something special out of it. Oh, this is changing. Okay. I mean, I moved a lot as a kid. I think they say that pressure and stress as a child creates resilience in adults. So that's my favorite word, honestly, it's resilience. So mm. I teach that for athletes and the reason I can teach it is because I have it.
1: Awesome. So you'd love, I, I keep two quotes on my, well, actually I tons of quotes, but I keep them on my desk. It's successful people begin their days where others end in failure. That's one of them. And another one is when you're going through hell, keep on going.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I could brag about my failures and I might one day, honestly, like, Failing is such good feedback. Like if you can just be addicted to feedback, when people, when I meet people, I'll say, how did you perceive me? What do you mean? No, I'm addicted to feedback. Tell me what you actually think. Like, let me hear so that I can get better. And so if someone's got something negative to say about me. I don't own it as like true, but it's like, okay, that's a perception. That helps me. And if I fail at something, that's fine. Cause I'm going to be great at something else. And instead of wasting my time here where I failed, I have an immediate piece of feedback. Go somewhere else, go over here, try something new. I think that if we can be okay failing, we're going to be way more successful because some people are really afraid of failing. Like, I don't know, to me, I'm not afraid of failing. I'll go do something and try it out and uh, be really committed to it. And if I feel like it's not right, okay, switch. So I'm really open to changing direction in the middle of the air, right?
1: That's great. You know what I almost forgot? And I can't believe I I almost forgot was you talked about epigenetics. Oh yeah. And I'm sorry to totally switch gears, but it just popped into my head and I didn't <laughs> want to forget about that. Do you mind explaining epigenetics and and how your work and how you work around with it?
0: Okay, yeah. So one of the ways I like to explain it is that if an athlete works with at a really, and I'm not dissing on anyone, but if an athlete works with at a really great psychologist, and let's say the psychologist gets that athlete to from 62% to 70% free throws, right? Including during playoffs. I would say that an epigenetic specialist or someone like me could get that athlete to 10% more without even touching the basketball. And this is why-
1: Can, can, can I interrupt for one second? 10% yeah. more from the 68% or uh, 10%?
0: 10% more from where they got to with the, with the, the mental okay, training. So yeah, so mental training can take you really far. It can. And then you add epigenetics to that. Like I I call my work quantum player development, right? Or quantum sports medicine, because it's a combination of both. Epigenetics can work really well with people suffering from disease, but it can also work really well with people suffering from mediocrity. And mediocrity shows up in our DNA sometimes. And I always say that I mean, as a black woman, I tend to do more research on this. I look into this a lot. So a young black athlete probably has in his DNA five, six, seven, eight generations back, someone who was an enslaved person. And as if you can imagine a black man back during slave times, it was not to his benefit to be wealthy, uh, good looking, strong, powerful, smart, brilliant, intelligent. None of those things would have been good. So the PTSD shows up as soon as you start to be great. Oh, there's a creeping feeling that they can't really relate to. They don't understand what it is. So if an athlete wants to shoot free throws better and he works with a shooting coach forever, but now he's a, pro, he's a pro athlete. Like there's not a whole lot more shooting coach stuff that can happen. Sometimes you can have a shooting coach that changes your game. However, if you look at the epigenetic markers, then possibly when he gets to the free throw line and the crowd's screaming, maybe he's got an epigenetic marker on his knee or his kidneys. And maybe that epigenetic marker is specifically related to either toxic chemicals that an ancestor absorbed by working in a field of toxicity, like a, literally a field, or perhaps it's from trauma and there's a PTSD epigenetic marker so that literally this athlete, when he steps to the free throw line and there's a screaming crowd around him, he doesn't realize it, but his DNA is quivering in its boots because this moment is a little too familiar to his DNA and it's a scary place. He wouldn't ever know that. And you're not going to get that out of someone in a regular talk session. But when you use intuitive epigenetic energy medicine, the intuition part of it, would help a practitioner like me see, oh yeah, going seven generations back, there was a huge fear of large crowds because what it meant was the last time, you know, when a great, great grandfather heard a large crowd, maybe he was a nine-year-old boy and that was the day he got taken away from his mother and never saw his family again. So if we, if we look back through the generations and this is all scientifically proven stuff, like trauma affects the DNA and epigenetic markers are like on the DNA strand, right? So an epigenetic marker could be like Smoking, being overweight, eating bad food, and it could also be trauma. So when you use the intuitive epigenetic energy medicine, you pull away the epigenetic marker. And now the athlete, without even really having to do a lot of work, suddenly just feels a little bit better at that free throw line. Because otherwise, when he steps to the line to shoot a free throw, all the good work he's done in practice goes out the door because his fascia now is tight. His muscles are tight. His bones are like shaking from the inside out. And he doesn't know why. But he thinks, I practice. I'm ready for this. His brain's talking to his organs and his kidneys are like, hey, dude, this is scary for us. And he's trying to overcome it. No, I was trained to say, I'm a great free throw shooter. I make my shots. So the athlete has this conflict that's inside that he probably can't hear, but his body hears it. And that's why his body goes into fight or flight. So I'm kind of being long winded here, but that's why free throws can get better with epigenetics, energy medicine.
1: So, so how do you, I mean, it's fascinating. And I um, completely agree with you. I know some uh, neuroscientists that are studying something similar, yeah. or actually they're studying this. I shouldn't say similar. They are studying this. So I've heard this before, but how are you able to identify their the epigenetics and, and what yeah. is it that you're doing that can help them get over that and into that zone?
0: Yeah, well, I work with a molecular biologist who's kind of creating and she and I together are putting together a way to train other people because it's like, oh, I can't be the only person out here working with athletes. This is too good. i got to share this. So I am an intuitive practitioner. So for me, when I work with someone, I don't need them to tell me who their great grandfather was. I can literally ask the body. And so this is a pretty popular thing for holistic healers, which I happen to be one of. So I ask the body, is it on the mom's side? And I get an answer, yes or no. Okay. Is it on the dad's side? Yeah. And I can ask questions of the body. Is it further back from the dad? Yeah. Grandfather? Yeah. Is it four generations back? No. Five? Yes. So I can actually intuitively come to the person or the place. And so many people have gone back to research, like the ancestor, because sometimes it's just a grandfather, right? And so they can go back and ask their mom, hey, did grandpa do this? And the answer is often yes. I had a girl one time who suffered from migraine headaches. She couldn't stop getting migraine headaches. And I said, I don't know why, but this is related to your grandfather. She goes, no, I didn't know him. I said, well, I know, but it's related to him. So find out from your mom what happened with your grandpa, because it's related to him. And it's, it's like a trauma thing. This girl went and asked her mom what was up with grandpa and did, why did, did he have headaches? And the mother started like bursting into tears. The grandfather had committed suicide and had shot himself in the head. And the mom found the father and never told her kids that grandpa committed suicide. And so this girl's suffering from headaches. And the, she was a young girl when she found her father. So the dead and you know, the gunshot wound. So I can just tell you that that story for me, because I was adamant, no, it's your grandpa. And she goes, no, I think it's food. I was like, number one thing, it's your grandpa. So that really reaffirmed for me. That happened about four years ago, reaffirmed that I'm on the right track with this work. Because I have athletes who have asthma. And I'll be like, hey, asthma's coming from your grandma's side, your mom's side, her, her mom. And it's actually related to this. And they'll, you know, I don't know about that. And then the mom will call me, wait a minute, what did you say to him? This is so true. How'd you know that? So they get really excited about it. So when you start working at the intuitive level or from the zone, it's all the same. Then you can know things that you wouldn't know. I tend to be so intuitive that it gets me in trouble sometimes. You know, I'll, I'll say something to someone. They're like, did you, did you read my phone? Were <laughs> you looking at my emails? No, I just felt this. I, I was in the zone a lot today and I just got information. Have you, you always,
1: have you always been an empath?
0: Yeah, I have been. The, my the, when I, I didn't know this was why, but when I was 21 years old, I was driving down the highway and I started sobbing. My best friend was next to me. She's like, what happened? I said, something happened to my boyfriend. She's like, what do you mean? We just saw him 30 minutes ago. He's fine. She know, something happened. I got to turn around. And we had actually at this point been discussing it. And I just felt compelled to turn the car around. She insisted on getting dropped off of the dorms. So I make this extra drive. I drive back 90 miles. I go to the restaurant where he worked and he had been murdered. And my my best friend was shocked. Like, how did you know? And everyone kept saying, how did you know? Because we didn't have cell phones. We just had pagers. I mean, I'm dating myself, right? But (laughs) that was when my mom kept saying, honey, you have a gift. And then the detective who was working the case said, you have a gift for this. Like you, I was like, what gift? He's like, how did you know? I'm like, I don't know. I just felt it. And then two years later, I was in a sort of, it wasn't really a mass shooting, but it was a gunman loose in the mall. And right before he walked in the door, I told my family it was time to leave. And I was like, move, like packing the bag, shoving stuff in the purse, like in a panic, we have to go. And they're like, why? We just got here. I'm about to buy food. And I'm arguing with my brother and this guy comes in and, you know, shoots up the mall. And the guy at the table next to us was actually killed. So we kind of made a family rule. If Laura says it's time to go, it's going to go. <laughs> so, and even when I saw my, before my boyfriend was killed, I had been in the same uh, general vicinity as him. And there was a guy there. And when the detective first said, when did you last see your boyfriend? I said, oh, this guy must've done it. And he's like, what? He goes, how do you know? I was like, well, he, well, he was there. I think he must've killed him. And it was so weird. He's like, does he own a gun? I was like, I don't know. So the detective from that case and the mall case both told me I had an intuitive gift and I should use it. So a mere 10 10 or 11 years later, I started thinking about it. So it took me a while for it to really kick in. But then once I started using it, I just use it to learn how to do healing work. And it feels pretty miraculous sometimes. It's a great gift to have and to cultivate. And also everyone is intuitive. It's just a matter of cultivating this. Like if I never lifted weights, my biceps were flabby I'd be like, eh, I don't have good biceps. I wasn't born with them. And the guy at the gym would be like, no, just train your biceps. Like, it would be so obvious that I didn't train my biceps or I'd have better ones. And to me, it's that obvious about intuition. If you just train your intuition, you'll have it. It's not, you know, reserved for the few. It's for everyone. It's just how to listen to it and how to build that muscle.
1: Well, like you said, you let it come to you to go through you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. you <laughs> That's the perfect summary for what I say let the game flow through you
1: (laughs) well gosh I still have so many more questions (laughs) let's do this let's wrap up I'm going to do I want to do a speed round with you okay I'd like to I'm just going to say a couple things and I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind how's that sound
0: good I love it
1: all right LeBron James or Michael Jordan
0: LeBron James oh man how do I (laughs) I know I'm the only one on the planet
1: (laughs) uh, all right exercise nutrition or breathing
0: Nutrition. Interesting. Meditation. Life-changing.
1: Eastern medicine.
0: The answer. Depression. Old news.
1: Oh, I like that. That's fantastic. Man, Laura, this has been a lot of fun. You have uh, just so many takeaways, whether it's just the mindset getting in the zone, the way to think about things, your stories, your story. (laughs) relationships. Again, I knew it. I knew coming into this was going to be difficult because there are so many of these topics that we could have gone on massive rabbit holes. So I want to kind of leave the door open to potentially having you come back and exploring some more holes with me.
0: Absolutely. I think there's a term that this young woman made up and she calls it a multi potentialite. And I love that you let me be me today. So thank you for letting me be that Pisces flowing through the water over here, over here, over here, because I love it. I love that part. (laughs)
1: Uh, You're fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network, The ones who succeed will network wise.